Welcome to Radio Free Deimos, an Ixundrakonistan podcast broadcasting from a post-Deimos orbit on Voltaire Station, now under new management. I am Corbo, and with me in the Deep Void of Space is our co-host Wines Hello. and Ashtar. And Ashtar. <laughs> oh, yes. Hi. Yes. Hi. Is this thing on? Am I here yet? <laughs> it, it is, and I cannot prove that you are or not. This episode, by the way, is brought to you by Space. The void is vast, cold and empty. Fill it with your memories. Oh, this marketing copy is terrible. It's where you put your stuff. Space. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So it's been a long time since we've last recorded, and I think we've been kind of on our own for a while. Uh, How was your time in the bubble? I just want to say that emerging from the bubble, I've been scrubbed and disinfected in places I didn't know one could be scrubbed and disinfected. Yeah. Don't recommend it. No, that that happens. I actually lost my keys in the bubble a few times. They ended up in the bottom of the bubble, and it was like a really long walk to get them. Hmm. We do not speak of the time in the bubble. <laughs> Fair. Well, over the last couple of months, there's been a lot of changes at Voltaire Station. Uh, we leased out three levels of the station to Pulse's in-house tourist agency, Parallax, and everything's been cleaned. The rust has been removed, which is nice. Level two is filled with blandly attractive people. They've got pretty good drugs, which is a plus. I don't know where the 20th century literature majors went. I'm, I'm hoping they turn up again. It's my cousins. Our microphones are currently set to 0.27 volume due to the ambient background. Your ears will thank us. <laughs> also, um, the, new, the new air, air filters are minty and fresh. I do like that. Yeah, except when they like have the kind of the margarita smell coming in at three. Although I, I, I almost miss the uh, decaying grease smell, but new things. Well, you can go outside. You can probably smell it even outside the airlock. <laughs> In the vacuum. Okay. It was, it was pretty thick grease. Yeah, yeah. It actually filled the vital need of air sealant. We're also starting kind of a new direction for Radio Free Deimos. It's broadly the direction that I think Ixut and Draconis itself is going, which is leaning more towards fan content, you know, material provided by the, the player base. So we're probably going to be incorporating more original content. Part of that is that we're going to also be looking at settings and like the planet and places to go. And the game's setting has been kind of skeletal for a very long time. So there's a lot of white space on the map to fill in there. And we will uh, be trying to do some of that. Translation, we can't plagiarize all the 20th century literaturists anymore. We can't find them. Yeah, I... Uh. But also, we've gone through nearly 70 episodes, and we've really explored a lot of canon. So we're kind of branching out a little bit for a while. And we've made some, too. We have. Mm-hmm. Uh, unfortunate, that. Um... <laughs> Boy, how can anything that big hide for so long a time? Yeah. I wonder what their next move will be. Kickstarter news. The uh, This is probably old news for everybody that listens to this podcast, but the Kickstarter for HSD Mastered launched about two weeks ago. Corbo here. We recorded this a week ago, and so obviously the Kickstarter information is a little out of date. Right this moment, the Kickstarter is funded at about $10,000 into its stretch goals, with a week left on the clock. So if you haven't chipped in, check it out. We have chipped in rather heavily here at Voltaire Station. And I'm hoping that we can get a lovely piece of artwork of our four happy hosts and maybe get the floating empathic space squid included as actually HSD cannon, which will make me very happy and possibly Tygon very happy too. 
delicious squid. There was an Ask Me Anything last night that was kind of fun. I didn't get to hear all of it, but I got a large chunk of it. One of the better lines was someone asked the question, are there going to be any new enemies from the near cool realms? Emmy's response is, yes, there are. Some of them are friendly, but they're friendly in a body horror sort of way. Vague imprecations of crafting rules for ships, which I don't think we talked about. No, maybe we mentioned that. She hinted at something that is, quote, sort of the HSD version of Magical Girls. Okay, I'm interested. I think it's an elite, maybe pulse organization that possibly fights crime with power-ups. And do they have outfits that we can print out and try? There is definitely a target audience for that out there. And I do believe that we playtested at least one of the scenarios that included some prototypes. <laughs> and two kaiju. Because why not? I, yeah, no, I can't argue with that. I do not know what corporation produced the kaiju. I hope it was Progenitus. Giant <laughs> shambling churches. <laughs> We've received messages from their spaceships. For a while, it came in as just a lot of jumbled noise. So this week's episode is going to be focusing on Blue Skies as kind of your welcome to the exploration of Sol as a large solar system. Uh, Blue Skies range out all the way to the Neptune orbit. And it occurred to me as I was doing some research on this that you may not have a write-up of Blue Skies in your rulebook because they were not really seriously included in 2nd edition. You had 1st edition and 2nd edition back-to-back. 1st edition had this extended glossary around about page 50 or so. It had a lot of terms and things like that, and that included some setting information that didn't get translated into 2nd ed necessarily. Blue Skies had like three paragraphs in that part of the book, and that that chunk didn't make it in 2.0. There's some new information about Blue Skies in 2.0, but for the most part, you might not actually have them in your campaign yet, so we're going to fill you in a bit. A Blue Sky is a city-sized space station drifting out in the void. They are large, tumbling cylinders, five miles-ish long, capable of sustaining up to like a half million inhabitants, maybe more than that. Uh, Although the low end of their kind of population pool is in the tens of thousands, so I don't really know what the in-canon number is. I kind of imagine that they're around 200,000 people and they're kind of a nice mid-sized city Mm -hmm. size. Blue skies tend to be luxurious and pretty. They're meant to be a posh place to live and presumably come with a high price tag to reflect that. Uh, It's a place for a single corporation to show off their stuff and build an environment that fits their inhabitants. But I think at the moment I'd like to turn the discussion of blue skies over to Emmy, who sat down with an interview with us about this topic uh, back in November So we'll give her the spotlight for a while. Manimi, would you play the clip, please? Hey, Emmy, thank you so much for joining me. It is really appreciated. No problem. Thank you for continuing to make these. It's it's nice to see them and and you know see that people are still thinking about the game and stuff. You're my only listener, so we we'll just thank each other all to pieces. (laughs) I think Tygon listens. So we are hoping to launch a little mini-series on Blue Skies and talk about maybe some of the semi-canon ones that were created during the Kickstarter last time and just get a sense for what that world is like because it's a part of the game that I don't know gets a lot of coverage yet. Yeah, not a ton. So I have a lot of questions, a lot, because this is just a topic that really has interested me for a while. Maybe you could start with just kind of what it would look like to walk down like the main avenue of one of these places. 
So you guys tend to use quite a bit of literary reference when you're referring to stuff. Did you ever read Rendezvous with Rama? Read who? Rendezvous with Rama. Rendezvous with Rama. No, I haven't. It was a very, very large cylindrical uh, quote-unquote station. It was basically a world. Significantly bigger than the Blue Skies are supposed to be. The Blue Skies are very obviously modeled off of Babylon 5. I'm not going to pretend they're not. In the same sense that many of the environments in HSD are designed to pull from tropes that people have seen in their life and loved and didn't get a chance to play with. So the the Blue Sky is an homage to that particular station feeling. There's a little bit of Deep Space Nine idea in it. It is a stationary space-based object to have a adventure that you're not moving in. The adventure is coming to you. So one of the kind of the images is like the the giant jack shape floating in space, slowly turning, huge ring, massive spindle sort of thing. Is is it kind of one size fits all? I mean, is that like a very standard model or? Um... Uh, for the most part, yeah, because there, there's the wheel, right, is one option for it. If you ever read a, a series of books called Titan, I think it was Gaia, Demon and Wizard. Yes, that is a, a favorite with us. Yeah, no, I adore the crap out of that. Highly yeah. influential. Um, that is a bigger world. Again, that's a I mean, that's a huge station. Right. Um, but I that do. premise, the same as the, the Deep Space Nine premise, can be used as a design for something of equivalent size. Yeah, it's a space um, that's big enough to get lost in. Right. The only thing with that one is the lore kind of description of the blue sky was that it was big enough from bottom to top that you could actually get some degree of atmospheric haze in it, which those circular stations, unless you're getting to the size of the Gaia station, don't really get that tall. When you said the atmosphere thing, that made me think of more of one of the tumbling cylinders. Where right. that's that's the more it's like B five is if you look up from the middle of it, you can see the ground on the other side. That's Rama's designed the same way. So when you're looking down the center of it, assuming there's nothing in your way, you see a a tube like looking down a a cardboard tube, and it's all of the population is along the interior of that tube. And gravity is rotational, so as you get closer to the middle of that tube, the less pull you've got. So there's this free space in the middle that you can kind of do some performance art in. Pretty much, yeah. It, there's a monorail that kind of goes to the middle of it that was an idea that was B5-based and makes a fair amount of sense because it takes almost no energy to move the thing. So if you're trying to ship heavy freight, you just ship it through the middle, and all you have to do is, is push it along. Oh, okay. I did I did Google this one, Arthur C. Clarke. Oh, was that for Rama? Yeah. 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 I'll still I, have to look that up. I was trying to remember. I would have pulled the wrong name out, so I'm glad I didn't. <laughs> no, Google. Google is your friend here. <laughs> yeah, that's an interesting series, and that one really did a... Um, it had a nice feel of enormousness, which Gaia did well, too. I just really like that series, so I bring it up a lot. But uh, uh, the Rama one has a start where the tube that they go into isn't active. So you have this great feeling of just this absolutely mammoth derelict, and mm. it's, it's handled pretty well. And they did some fun stuff with it. There's an ocean in the middle of it that has a, a wall that's higher on one side than the other. And they couldn't really figure out why this thing was designed this way. There's this river that's, you know, a mile wide or something more in the middle of this cylinder. And one end of it is bigger than the under end of it. And they, they weren't really sure why it was there until they accidentally turned the damn thing on and it started accelerating. And the entire ocean ramped up against the taller side. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like a spin related thing. It was a yeah an acceleration because it was shooting it was accelerating from the back end of the tube forward, so the ocean had to push against one shore, or it would have overflowed. So I assume that when you're walking through one of these in your universe in HSD, there's a fair amount of like green and an attempt to make this more planetary. I guess is the word. Yeah, um, they they are intended to be mostly mostly open headroom. 
So you can see the other side, obviously. It's not so enormous that the other side has vanished, mm-hmm. but it is, there's a lot of you know ceiling space. That's its major draw as opposed to a standard station, which is a bit more efficient in how it handles decking. No, we live on one. I understand efficient there. That's basically the idea. So when you go in, you're, you're feeling a little bit more like you're in an open area. It's intended for long-term habitation, lifetime habitation. So you know there's room to walk around, move, do a lot of stuff. But layers and layers underneath because it is a Marsco product. They build down. Yeah, a bit and and up. So there's room for skyscrapers and stuff. Oh, um, it's pretty tall. They're not as tall as you'll get on Mars, but they're big enough. You know, you can get 24s or something into a building. I haven't actually measured what would be efficient, but enough that you could do high-rise buildings. I mean, percentages are hard, but how many people in Seoul kind of broadly like live in these? Are most of them still planet-bound, or is this common enough to where you meet as many interplanetary travelers as you would planet-bound folks? Um, it depends on who owns it and where it came from. There are several, uh, and they haven't been specifically mentioned, but these are just settings to play with and, and you know things to know, right? So there were a few that were purchased by corps that, that went out of business. I know Longbow is um, one of those. They were bought or they were leased or something, and the, the corp went out of business, and there was a population on it, and that population continued to grow, and they sort of started keeping it up themselves, mm-hmm. right? The, the problem, there was... Um, Canonically, and this hasn't been written down or, or explored in a whole great deal, it's just a thing that's in my head. In my canon. Um, right. There there are several of these sort of stations that were purchased up during a big big land grab, quote unquote. When they first became available and there were a lot of you know, Marsco was trying to incentivize people to get into them because it was this brand new thing. We're in the three hundreds around before Venus really opened up and we learned that we didn't really want to live in in faraway places so much. <laughs> a little bit. Venus was kind of a popularity stunt, but it was also a lot of other things. It was a, a technology, you know, boon. It was a, a, we have survived the tumultuous first few centuries thing. That was kind of a big thing. Venus was a victory. It was supposed to be a species-wide victory. Yeah, no, I, um, that, that's but, in uh, the, the, uh, the The Blue Skies thing was just Mars made a cool product, and they wanted to get people to buy it because it's enormously expensive, so they incentivized the purchase. You know, they said, we'll give you the plans if you build it yourself. We'll we'll build it for you and, and let you pay it off over generations because this is a generation shit. It's supposed to be out here for centuries. So yeah. you will just owe us for the next 400 years. But that's, that's okay. What it that's what a mortgage is. Yeah. And they, they did that sort of thing. And inevitably, like any loan, several of them folded. But it was proven kind of impractical to reclaim the space. Right. You can, you that's can a lot of resources. The, yeah. It's you a, can't take it, it I mean, down. it's a lot of metal. And stuff that they could conceivably give to somebody else, but nobody really wants a used one unless they're a smaller business that might negate on it again. Its value really drops rather dramatically because you don't really know what's been done with it. I mean, as long as a corporation owns it, correct me if I'm wrong here, as long as it's owned by a corp, then there's the trickle revenue from ledgers and things like that. So it should kind of come close to breaking even. I mean, it kind of depends. The population can contribute to certain wealth. Yes, but it depends on how the purchase was made. Hmm. If the ship was bought outright, it's still a ship. Ships are sovereign. Uh-huh. So that trickle revenue goes to whoever bought it at that point. That was one of the big incentives is you, you basically get your own nation. It's small, but it serves you. Uh, I'm seeing Corp purchases your home blue sky as a potential plot line for a, a mini campaign. Yeah, and that was a, that was the thing. It's kind of like eminent domain, right? They just take it and say, okay, we're going to remake half the homes in here. You guys got to go find a place to live. And which is shitty, but that is kind of the nature of the, the, the corporate state of the game no, uh, we, that you were supposed to shake your fist at. 
Yeah, no, that that's the great unfairness that uh, balances out the, the free gruel. <laughs> but yeah, so that is a thing that happens. And the other thing about them is, uh, while they are enormous things, they're actually not terribly defensible. You can put a you can put a defensive array around it, but unless you have a fairly sizable fleet that you also own, you can be fairly easily overwhelmed by a larger power if they decided to kick you out. Yeah, if Monstro we... needs to go raid another blue sky, they've got enough ships to do it. Yeah, we don't have the shields up captain technology quite, as far as I know. Yeah, they're coming out in the new book. Well, she, oh, she never mind then. <laughs> it's an experimental product. <laughs> um, it sometimes works. I did have a, a pet theory about blue skies, which is that they weren't originally created by Marsco, but were, that they were created by Stellarum, and that was kind of the thing that launched them into their sort of semi-megacorp status for a few centuries. The, I mean, the, the idea has been played with a lot, right? We're playing with it now, about being a potential thing that, that could maybe be done. Um, structural strength is really the limiter, as far as I'm aware. Uh-huh. There's things like trying to get the air to work and stuff, too, but it's once you get over a certain size, spinning at a certain rate, it gets really tough for steel to keep up. Right, and that transparent aluminum or something. Right. Um, so the actual generator, um, I would have to check to see what the timelines fall into. But a lot of those things kind of um, uh, become synonymous. It's kind of like saying, you know, the United States had a space program. Well, no, it didn't. It had a German space program, you know. So Stellarm was probably involved <laughs> in one way or another. I just liked them. They were my, my favorite little dead corporations at this point. Yeah, they did do a lot of stuff. So here's one of those possibly impossible to answer questions. I'm going to ask it anyway. What does it look like when you're about to land on the quad? Four blue skies linked together, one of which doesn't work anymore. Uh, there is a landing pad in between them, so oh, it's okay. it's not rotating on its own. Um, <laughs> they have their own ports on the on the sides, which is kind of like it's the same way they. It's kind of the only way that you would really be able to land on an object like this, because if you're trying to match rotation on the outside of a of a cylinder, you've got. Well, I mean, you played hope. There's challenges. Basically, what you're trying to do, yeah. <laughs> But uh, uh, if you go into the middle of it, all you have to do is match spin. And, and it's not even all that fast in the middle. So they, they usually board in from the middle section. But for, for those ones, you've basically got four cylinders attached to kind of a, you know, almost like a, a speed loader for a revolver. Uh, oh. There's a platform between them all that you can get onto. Okay, okay, that works. I can see that. Four giant wheels and then one yeah, four, shape four big drums them. right four four big you know cardboard toilet paper tubes and then there's this little thing that is attaching them all and you land on that and then you take shuttles out to the actual individuals okay i can see that i'm just peppering you with these questions but i don't have this opportunity too often when the kickstarter came out last time it looked like there was about maybe 20 loose guys floating around out there and they are large they are big investments and fairly serious does that number fit about with kind of what you see in terms of the density of these things? I mean, that one kind of varies. <laughs> um, part of the reason there was 20 is because that was a, a fun little piece for people to get their own own stuff into the game. Mm-hmm. So I could only fit as many as would fit in the little text section where I wrote all the names out. Right? That's there's, a, there's the reality the uh, factor of that one there. Um, I would not say that there are millions of them floating around. They're very large investments. But space is big, and they've had centuries to make a lot of money. Sure. So you so, consider that 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 Bezos has what two hundred billion dollars within his lifetime. Um, there are there is enough money to make hundreds of these, thousands of these, most likely. And there's so much space in space that it's not like they'd be local to each other. Okay. The the big thing that kind of limits their overall creation, and this was actually one of the selling incentives for them, 
um, is that even though space is huge, there are certain pieces of prime real estate that you want to be in because of energy, um, because of, of access to main traffic lanes and, right. and things like that for direct lines at, at, you know, if you're trying to, to be a stop off point between planetary travel, say from Jupiter to, to Mars, it behooves you to put your station between the path that is longest because it's most likely that they'll want to stop at you. It's a layover. Yeah, it seems like there is a primary route through Seoul, broadly speaking. Like there's 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 a, a a a big the Nile River that runs across the system, and that's what most people seem to travel on. It travels very business. seasonal, right? For pl- interplanetary travel, anyway. Um, you can do it at any time, but you're talking about enormous differences in the the trip time. Yeah. Um, that's actually no, one of the reasons why no, I mean, is, I mean, it's <laughs> always two weeks. We've established that. <laughs> it's constantly two weeks. It's one of the big selling. I mean, obviously there's tons of selling points for light speed travel, but the, the big one that they push is, you know, travel anytime you want to. It's not going to matter. How about reconciliation? No, capitulation. No, it's not capitulation station. It's no, something. It's, it's, it's not. It's, um, <laughs> yeah, I can't remember. I'd have to look it up too. I know the one you're talking about though. I want that, to say it starts with a V. Evapulation stage? Does that sound in silence? No. No, yeah. no, it's in the main book. Really? It's no. it's just a picture. It's got uh, the, the cog on it. I think it might be talked about a bit more in in um the in sound and silence, but there's there's a comment about it in, in the core book that has there's a cog and a and I think a vector there. Oh the one dress? The one that's dancing? I think she's just standing there. Why don't you have this memorized? I mean, I honestly probably should, but I've only had the one chance to write about that one. No, this is extreme trivia. Oh, it's it's Exculpation Station, is that right? There we go. Yeah, that's, that's like a V. So one of the first ones we really want to touch on is Exculpation Station. I don't really have a lot of specific questions about this that aren't just kind of questions about blue skies in general. But the place is kind of out in the boondocks. It's out on the edge of uh, like commonly traveled space. 355 days a year are we talking like total dead zone or no it has other jobs um it's 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 big thing is that when it contracted for this particular task because of its location um and because it was well maintained so the thing about blue skies is they're often maintained by their populace because they're so big that you need to have a lot of people on them and like any sort of place that hires kind of public work right eventually the work reflects the overall population's feeling more or less, hmm. or how well they're being paid, or or how well in, they're 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 being treated, or something. It starts to sort of reflect the people inside of it. That's interesting. Um, that 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 suggests that there's a certain free for all attitude here that would let them want to host the big cops and robbers con. Uh, kind of. So I mean, the the thing is, once once you've got a contract with essentially the government, which is what these are, you can usually hold on to that contract provided you don't upset them. So they, they had this, this sort of contract to be this gala and that they won that contract A through bid war, like, you know, people normally do. Uh, and B, because the actual owner of the station keeps it up to a, a degree of decorum that is somewhat higher than, than most of the other ones in that location. Yeah. There are a lot of secrets there, I'd imagine. Yeah, probably. That location, because it's so distant, doesn't usually have a whole lot of major funding. It's it's topping like, you know, independent corps or inherited stations or things like that. This one's really kind of an opulent place and has a lot of, you know, security around it that can be done. It It, it is able to protect itself. It's able to host very high levels of government. And they, they won this bid 
while that's not in there, it serves as a combination of, I want to say like executive rental. So for, for people who are working out in the boonies, they're, they're way off by Jupiter or Saturn and they need a place to stay and they, they either don't have access to like a large fleet ship. They have a, a private ship that dropped them out there, but couldn't stay, or it's just a little skiff and they don't want to live in it for the next six years. They can go live on this blue sky. You know, it's a, it's, it, it's an executive planet basically for things like conventions and other things like that. So they, they are a destination location out in a place that doesn't have a whole lot of those. Yeah, well, it's either that or stay at the Bolton Rivet Station, and that pretty, place pretty is ba- basically a floating, <laughs> a floating gas station in space. Yeah, it's sort of the biggest, biggest, big money high roller suite in the area. So, kind of thinking again, thinking of the broad spectrum of these little floating dots of civilization in space, uh, are there any that you wanted to kind of circle back on at some point in time, or any stray, stray ideas that hadn't made it into the sacred text yet? Uh, I mean, the one that usually gets the most attention is Longbow, um, but that's kind of its own critter. Well, it's got its own write-up, too. Uh, at, the, at this point, yeah, it's got it's got some explanation of its own. Most of the ones that are done for the independent grottoes kind of have their own little write-up. Yeah. Uh, that are with them. The, the overall design intent is fairly clear. This is if you want to create an environment that's completely isolated, that you can really control all the aspects of it and get some of that feel of, like, it's a world unto itself, but things come to visit it, and they're usually big and dangerous things. Right, um, the, the battles, the the Deep Space Nine plotline, all, all, all that stuff. It's it's um that's what these are basically for to capture. The the ones that are related to kind of official ones are mostly in there, but you're not going to find a whole lot of. I'm trying to think of how to phrase it. I don't want to say that they're they're not going to be individually themed because a lot of them are if they're intended to be destinations. It's just more likely to find that in a sort of standard size station, because if you're really trying to build a theme, unless you're Disney, you don't really need a city block to do it in. There's a lot of space on a, on a five mile long drum. Mm-hmm. Um, you might theme part of it, but really to maintain a station of that size, you need to have a residence. So unless they're living in that theme all the time, it's, it's kind of more equitable to have a smaller station that you can theme completely for visitation. This yeah. is really, really the big pull of the blue sky in terms of a financial investment is that if you do get it paid off, it's sovereign. So every person that lives there, however many thousands to, to I think it's a quarter of a million people, um, those are your citizens at that point. The trick is no one ever <laughs> stays open for that many centuries of corp Pretty to uh, get yeah, those things paid off. The, the usual you know, thing with any kind of lending is this is never going to pay off for you. It's just going to pay off for us. <laughs> This was definitely one of the ones that, I mean, there, there's, there's, there's neat destinations that are in them, but this was created as a tie-in to popular sci-fi for people who wanted that environment to play in. Yeah. Than no. it was for a, a kind of specific, this is going to loop back into the lore in some way. It's a type of setting. It's a type of game that is in a very fragile environment. <laughs> mm-hmm. And on that same note, there are, there are several ship classifications within the kind of enterprise level ships. So if you wanted to do that kind of game too, you could. It has a, a smaller um, span of visible areas, but that's sort of the tricky thing is, is, is popular science has kind of taught us to, to and I don't mean the magazine, I just mean pop sci-fi, uh, has kind of taught us to, to interpret science fiction as a bunch of planets that you have to travel to before you get anything new, and it really doesn't have to be. Yeah, it's the episodic thing, like the desert world, the ice world of Hoth or whatever, or right. Star Wars, and- picaresque. But if you want to do that kind of stuff within the solar system, the blue skies make for good planets. 
So you come into a new one and they never really know what to expect inside it. Small enough to be kind of isolated and on its own. And some of the older ones actually might be their own worlds. Mm-hmm. Neat. Yeah, I could definitely see plots of like, you know, you going into this station and the generations that are in there have never really seen the outside or they haven't had traffic for a long time or somebody isolated them a couple generations ago. If you wanted to do that kind of run, they're, they're good places for, for secret bases that people don't even know about within the station. So you've got a faction that's operating off of a blue sky and the people in the blue sky don't know it or they're paying off the people in the blue sky. Because that's, that's really neat if you need a lot of space and a lot of workers and a lot of people, but you also need to isolate it. There's only one entrance. Right, you you know who's getting in and out. Is the theory okay? Well, um, I mean, thanks a lot. I sure do appreciate you finding some time for this. Uh, it's, it's really appreciated, and it's going to be make it. Uh, it's going to be a fun part of our kind of next major episode arc. So, again, very much appreciated. So, what do we know about blue skies? that we haven't already just discussed at length in that interview that all of you were listening to with me. We're dealing with a um, kind of a cylindrical environment about five miles long. That's about, I guess, five square miles. That's about five square miles if you assume the diameter is about a mile. I kind of did some measurements based on the Babylon 5, based on pictures of the Babylon 5 station to kind of guesstimate the size, which is mm-hmm. like a mile diameter. But Marsco builds up and down. These are Marsco products for the most part. So probably we're looking at maybe... Maybe 10 miles of floor space if you add up like layer two, layer three, sub layer one, sub layer two, sub layer three. D- depends how, how high you want your ceilings to be. It could be, a, I mean, volume wise, that's a huge volume. Right. But they're meant to look kind of nice and pretty and have like large lanes and avenues. So you're probably not going to get deal with too many uh, urban canyons. Mm-hmm. I have this mental image of a giant Marsco branded pasta printer that just bloops out the cylinder and chops one off and loops out another cylinder and chops it off. Off they go, <laughs> floating into the deep dark. I think the technical name for this sort of structure is a O'Neill cylinder, which is kind of the standard name of, of this particular megastructure idea. Usually two cylinders rotating in opposition to each other, so they kind of counterbalance their spins. I think that's the, the general name of the concept, and you can, of course, wiki for this sort of thing if you'd like to. I would encourage you to go to Google Images and look up O'Neill Cylinder. That's O apostrophe N-E-I-L-L-A Cylinder. Because there's a lot of really neat images there of these kind of vast circular space stations. There's kind of a, a gaming precedent that I remember that we talked about, but I cut out of the interview, which is that there's a city in Dungeons & Dragons that's kind of built like this. Uh, Sigil. If you played in the Playscape game, this is like a giant floating Taurus tube that has the city kind of built up on the top and the bottom of it so you can see the lights uh, overhead during the day cycle. Anyway, neither here nor there. Uh, other things we know about them, there's only a very few named ones in the original book. We've got the Quad, which is a four-unit complex of these things. Uh, in It's kind of the main port for Venus. And uh, Fort Deimos, which is actually, it's the Blue sky that our station is in close orbit to. <laughs> this one used to be uh, where one of the moons of Mars was, but it was removed for a hyperspace bypass. And Longbow would be a third named one, although that one is largely defunct and it's been recategorized as a grotto. It started out as a blue sky, and it gives us some ideas about how blue skies operate that are kind of useful for you know creating scenarios and things like that. In Sound and Silence, as a part of the Kickstarter, there was a bunch of new named blue skies that were mentioned 
including the Bolton Rivet Station, which is sort of the universe's biggest gas station, and Amazon Station, which is kind of a Star Trek tropical oasis with some harem overtones. <laughs> uh, we got some write-ups of those after talking with the original creators, so that's kind of fun, and those are on our website. Are you sure it's not just the Galactic Warehouse? Because it sounds like the Galactic Warehouse. Well, Amazon Station, yeah, I guess uh, I guess in retrospect. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and there's also the Exculpation Station, which is where the annual police ball slash spy versus spy party is held. I think that's out in the orbit of Saturn, so way out there. And I have really wanted to call it the Exhibition Station, and I haven't. Um, but it's stuck in my mind that I want to say that at some point in time, so give me a moment and I will. Uncountable automated robots, counting inventory for infinity. I feel like that was named so that people couldn't reliably look it up. Yeah, you had to know how to spell exculpation? Yeah, I didn't even know it was a word. I thought it was just a, a noise. Yeah, it's like it's it's the proper word for a get-out-of-jail-free card, I think. Okay, okay. Yeah. I will take your word for it because your degree says I have to. <laughs> <laughs> also, the ring says you have to. Credentials. Oh, <laughs> uh, so the, Excul- the Exculpation Gala is a, I think, every other year event, although how do you define years in Seoul, where the brass from IRPF get together with some of the, the top mucky mucks from Spyglass and they don't kill each other. Instead, they just trade information and secrets and things like that and try and make sure they have a good working relationship for the next two years, which is ironic in the extreme. But you can't have hatred all the time. So it's kind of a nice thing. There's actually a picture of it uh, in both of the main hardbound books. If you've seen that image of like the cog cat dancing with, I think, a dog, in pretty ballroom things. If you okay, look, yeah, yeah. If you look in the background, the uh, heraldry is the symbols for Spyglass and IRPF. Interesting. Yeah, not not really, but <laughs> but by our very rarefied definitions, <laughs> yes. <laughs> so one of the takeaways from our interview was that uh, one of the main plot ideas for the Blue Sky is for the sort of plot where um, you're in a hub. And adventures come to you. This is very much the Deep Space Nine model. Um, Not exploration so much as like sort of a fulcrum sort of thing. Same sort of plots you get in uh, The Veil, I think. Remind me what The Veil is. Uh, Yeah, it's been a few months. Uh, The Veil is the Valles Marineris Trench area. It's a canyon about 2,000 kilometers or miles long where all of the rich and famous in Seoul have their summer homes. And okay. on the other side of the hemisphere in Mars, their winter homes. They may Same have both. the social crop. Yeah, the politics there tend to be on the order of uh, Game of Thrones, but, but a little bit prettier. The setting of the greatest of games. Yes. Anyway, you might get some of that in your local blue sky as well, because it's a small, insular, and expensive neighborhood. You might get some of the same players as well, actually, for the same reason. Blue Sky, Tavern and Bar, where the quests come to you. (laughs) Uh, So I think that looking at it in terms of that perspective, you can set your campaign sliders to uh, emphasize that by playing up uh, certain traits. Isolation would be one of them. A lot of the Blue Skies are like kind of off the main travel routes. They tend to be along the primary roads, but um, scattered in the void between, well, all over from Mercury to Neptune. there's a lot of empty space there, and these little little beads of light are, um, I don't know, kind of like uh, 
what, league league houses like what what are those old houses that were every twenty miles or so? Or if you're just a really out there cult or organization and you want privacy to rebuild the universe in your own image, seal yourself inside of a big tin can and ignore the outside world. Yeah, exactly. I mean, they're halfway towards being a grotto. They're like a grotto on contract because uh, each blue sky is really owned by a single corporation. Um, That makes that a sovereign territory of that corporation, which is as close to an independent nation as you get in Seoul. Uh, they're still ultimately owned by Marsco. There are backdoors everywhere, I suspect. But almost all of the money goes into the corporation's pockets. And it's it's as close as you can come to having a safe fiscal harbor in this world where there are much bigger fish that are preying on the middle-level ones. They're also a lot better for some of the more isolated plots because they are large enough to have an established local government or at least a local contr- control structure. But they're far enough away from reinforcements that you kind of have to deal the hand that you're given, not necessarily run off next door and find some allies. Yeah. I'm kind of getting the impression there's a lot of I'm kind of getting the impression there's an awful lot of them in the Jovian system area and beyond. Like maybe that's the dominant uh, habitat in that area. I mean there's Ganymede's not very nice sometimes. Actually Ganymede built the first of the big mass produced standardized blue skies. Uh, back when Stellarum was a thing in 400. So you can kind of date the blue sky period from, I guess, around the time Jupiter was... Mm, <laughs> Jupiter was never terraformed, Jacob. <laughs> That'd be a trick. <laughs> it would. You can kind of date the blue sky period from, I guess, like 450 after Earth, when Stellarum was a thing, when Ganymede was really kind of coming to its own as a community. So And uh, after Venus was terraformed. So this is like during the great space expansion. They weren't really a thing before then. Uh, oversight and control is probably a slider you should seriously think about in a blue sky based campaign because it's a corporate monoculture because it's an entirely enclosed and constructed environment. A, a corporation that wanted to have their eye on you probably could really easily. Right. There's only so many places to go. Yeah. One thing that's been stressed a few times in HSD in general, uh, is the idea that there is no such thing as the desert planet or whatever. Like, Mars is not themed. Mars is where people live. It's about as themed as Earth is. Mm-hmm. But a blue sky legitimately could be themed because it's branded by a corporation. So, you know, it might not be, everybody might not be required to wear mouse costumes or something like that. But they could. They could. There's a single thumbprint on the entire corporation or on the entire building, which may be a corporation as well. Uh, and that's going to leave a mark somehow, depending on the corporation in question. Well, I just had a crazy thought. You mean- the concept of a dead mall, except it's a space station. Yeah. That's creepy. Ugh. It really is. And there's like layers of these things underneath. Um, there, there's things living in the food court. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I imagine that the level two of Blue Sky is like all one of those sustained underground malls where you can kind of just go between buildings without ever seeing the light of day. Mm-hmm. And like colonies of Morlocks live there, possibly. But also, occasionally a blue sky is sold, or someone does not pay their dues and is repossessed, I guess. Um, But you can't do anything with a building that large, and it doesn't have that much resale value. It's like a used car in that regard. So what happens then? Maybe it's managed, quote-unquote, by the inhabitants after a certain time, or sold to a corporation that doesn't quite care as much, and it does become kind of that third-string mall sort of thing. 
Mm. And also you'd have the original like fingerprints and impressions left by the former corporation that never quite go away. Mm. So maybe like there's like this entire system of very friendly people pleasing robot personalities that underlay everything that your current corporate overlords would really like to not be there anymore, but you can't oh. quite escape them because they're tied to the programming somehow. I don't know. You could play up that ghost of the past thing really easily if you wanted to. Yeah. I had an idea, really a blue sky is one giant machine. And in first ed, this wasn't mentioned in second ed, but it's still the case. As far as I know, it hasn't been like declared otherwise. And I actually got a response from Emmy on it. That this is kind of an oversight rather than a, an intentional thing is cogs have a degree of like machine telepathy. Mm-hmm. Basically they are, they are a toggle on, on feet or wheels or hover grids. So they can just touch something and communicate with it. It's not really a superpower because you could do that with a toggle yourself, but imagining a station manager that's a cog and has tweaked the entire network to work with his personal internal toggle equivalent. Uh huh. Yeah. That'd be awkward. Yeah. And then you dated them for a while and broke up. <laughs> I think the plot writes itself at that point. Mm-hmm. Where's the USB port? <laughs> uh, some other kind of plot ideas or maybe seeds for you. Uh, the map ends here. There is no reason to believe that a blue sky is a perfect station or system or doesn't have massive non-functioning areas. Longbow is originally a blue sky and it was attacked by several ships trying to reduce it to non-salvageable assets. <laughs> but it still works. You can still live there. There's still oxygen. There's just some places that are riskier than others. Or entirely uninhabitable. Like the inside. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's that. <laughs> but I think we've talked about the idea of like corporate archaeology a few times. And that there might be something really important in the non-airlock section of the of the system might be kind of fun or there might be something more like a pale man colony living in the recesses of the station that no one really knows about because they're really off the grid i think that's what happened to the uh, abandoned platform on venus's quad station no proof but one suspects another plot that might be really fun and you can kind of have a uh, heart of darkness moment on this or something more comedic but imagining a team of elite IRPF urgent reminder folks, that's the repossession organization, mm-hmm. going to reclaim this huge, very expensive multi-generational asset and how much fun that would be. <laughs> so where do you serve papers to a space station? Well, you got to find the board. Yeah. Wherever they are. And they might be like abandoning themselves to decadence, booze, and a slow suicide by malfeasance at that point. I don't know. But uh, finding them is going to be fun, and seeing where they've holed up is going to be exciting, too. Uh, Space diplomats, that's kind of an obvious one, since you're in this neutral territory that's the hub of some major space route or something like that. Actually, just continue on that. Given that um, the blue sky can be kind of its own little social world, the question of who's in charge, no one on the outside might really have any clue what the internal structure is if they've been independent for a while. So you might show up and say, so how do you, you know, take us to your leader? How do you run things? What, you don't have a leader? Uh, I don't care. I'm just leaving. I don't want to hear about your concept of government. Well, and does anybody actually agree on it? Because if yeah. the bulk of the population doesn't interact with the board or if the board collapsed 150 years ago. Yeah, if the maintenance Morlocks give you one answer and the uh the 
internal drum Eloi give you a different answer, what do you go with? If the blue sky automated caretakers are sufficiently advanced, then the sentience on it might actually be regressing. Regressing how? To uh, uh, technologically. If ah. the automated are taking care of absolutely everything, then you could either get into kind of a post scarcity place where what was the one with the little robot? Wally? Yeah. Wally scenario yeah. where the sentients are just basically sitting in a chair and in VR for their entire lives. Or if it's provided and kind of in the background, it can get so advanced that people don't have to go to school or learn anything. And you can very quickly start getting a society that devolves back into a pre-spacer culture. Well, given that a lot of vectors are kind of programmed with their knowledge at a young age, you, you could have some really dystopian elements there if you wanted to go down that road of a blue sky plus out of control AI plus uh, amoral corporation. Marketing copy absolutely prohibits the use of the word vault around blue skies. <laughs> and there's also the big broad category of claustrophobia stories that you can play with. Disease outbreaks are not unknown in Seoul. They're just rare. But for a group that's kind of cut off from the bulk of society, they might be less rare. Whisper outbreaks, transcendent infiltration, or any number of as-yet-unpublished alien species. There's a lot of plots involved in being in this trapped, dense environment that uh, you can't necessarily get on Mars. Yeah. And not that anyone would ever do tests like that, but like these contained environments, you could collect really interesting data about new diseases or computer viruses on a sealed population. It'd be really interesting to see, to see what happens, but you'd never start something like that deliberately. But if it happened and you were watching, eh. how much can you sell that data for? Ooh, actually that would give an ASR owned blue sky, a lot of power to scan the minds of its inhabitants in this entirely sealed box which could create an interesting downward spiral of like augmented reality hallucination, repeating augmented reality hallucination. <laughs> Again, we wouldn't necessarily go there, though. That'd be bad. But horrifying futuristic concepts is on topic. Fair. This is not Star Trek, the role-playing game. At some point in time, uh, when we were doing a lot of uh, world-building for this, I wrote up a little mini-corp called Blue Horizon, I believe, that was specifically Mars Coast support group for Blue Sky Stations. And it had some fun ideas there. Um, so, I mean, first off, it's just the, the, the idea that this group might be able to plant like a wizard mode access on most of the Blue Sky Stations they work with would be really cool. And like this outside agency that might have very high-level access to the system's hollow projectors and things like that for, the use, for use in an actual emergency. And a number of features that were not actually advertised in the original marketing copy or were long forgotten because nobody read the manual. Mm -hmm. uh, so if you have a loved one lost on a blue sky or longbow, maybe you need to get with this Blue Horizon group to kind of access them somehow. Uh, they've got the cheat codes. Yeah, Werner Wenge, in, in his stuff, uh, kind of referred to stuff like that. There is the, the interstellar, the ancient trading consortium, Quang Ho, that had been doing business so long they had ancient records. And when you come across computer systems, their 
software archaeologists can say, hold on, let's do some research. We can probably find something about holes in there that the people using it don't know about if we look in the history books from far enough back. Which is an interesting concept, because once computers have been around for a long, long time, you've got, you, know, you may have layers on top of layers, and whoever has the thicker history books or files ha- could have a real advantage, like in, in the case you're mentioning, of the Mars Co. Like writing a lot of the old source code. Huh. I'm not going anywhere with that. Just it's interesting. No, no and I also kind of, uh, yeah, I'm also kind of reminded of like techno priests from World of Warcraft. Uh, or actually I think the, um, uh, I'm also kind of reminded of the techno priests from like the world of Warcraft game where they're just encanting these ancient, you mean Warhammer? What did I say? Warcraft? World of Warcraft. Yeah. I really meant Warhammer, not yeah. Warcraft. Um, <laughs> but that, that thing, what I tried to say, yeah. um, which actually kind of reflects badly, uh, some ideas from the long now, this, uh, ancient group that kind of uses these unbreakable devices to do their daily lives as opposed to new technology mm-hmm. uh, and kind of ritualistically uh, maintains them, that sort of thing. I, Blue skies are only like 300 years old though at this point. So you probably haven't gotten to that level of degeneracy, right? But your mileage may vary unless you really want to work at it. And some yes. people do. Oh no. And if you want to, you have several different megacorps. Each of those megacorps is going to be working off kind of a different direction, their code bases are absolutely going to diverge. But whoever looks at the code in, oh, the refresh cycle on your air filters, whoever realizes, oh, wait, we didn't write that, did we? Those who live by the code die by the code, and some vectors are code. Oh, right, the air we breathe goes through those, doesn't it? (laughs) (laughs) We did get to have a little game in a blue sky once. That was kind of fun. Uh, I forget the name of it, but uh, Emmy ran that campaign where we were playing the bang, bang, bang pop detective group. Yes. I, one thing I remember is that down the center of the colander, colander, colander is not the right word. <laughs> down the center of the cylinder, uh, there's like a null gravity zone that you can kind of drift up and down on both for like personal recreation and transportation. Although I don't remember, or I think that I'd wonder whether it's like a null gravity empty zone or whether it's more often like a cylindrical shaft because both kind of make sense to me either way. The, that was uh, using rotational gravity. So there was no gravity to speak of in the middle, but it very yeah. slowly grew as you approached the edge of the cylinder. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, that makes sense, but I just kind of wonder architecturally if it makes, I think architecturally it makes more sense to be, for there to be a long supporting strut down the middle that you can use for transport. But who knows? Who knows how your specific station is built? Yeah. Transportation and logistics was much more fun there because you basically just had lines of cannons along the side that you lined up appropriately and <laughs> shot across the center of the cylinder. Pulse. <laughs> I do want to get back to the uh, Blue Horizon group because I think we're going to touch on them a little bit more as we look at some of the fan created blue skies. And I like them as a group. Um, the leader is uh, Maya Glass. She's a big massive tiger that dominates the boardroom and kind of does double duty as a diplomat and posh networker and uh, occasional warrior because tigers are good for that sort of thing. A fairly lean team. There's mostly just one manager of every major blue sky and that's the bulk of the staff. Maya's fleet is built of the big flagship Lagrange Zero, a number of other ships mostly asr technology and at least two or three of the 
space-hardened interplanetary geomats because you got to have a few of those lying around. I don't know how common they are now. That's not really specified. Again, your campaign mileage may vary, but I had them as being kind of rare and older devices in my head just because I like that kind of fall-apart technology from Star Wars. Uh, amongst her senior leadership, we meet, let's see, Bracket Bracket Garen plus Splat Splat, a gazelle fundraising specialist, absolutely pure pulse, uh, would like to be in charge of the corporation, but has put that on his business card so everybody's clear on it, who lives on Fordamos, which is like the poshest of the stations. Rick Scriber, a technician, sort of an ASR Marsco, not lab rat, but lateral raccoon, who just kind of is the couch potato at the center of a vast spider web of probes and runnits and things like that. Uh, he lives at the Bolton Rivet Station. I love the Bolton Rivet Station. This was a fan-provided idea of like this massive like truck stop in the middle of the uh, Jupiter uh, trade route. The head of security, Subaran Urger, uh, former IRPF, who, who troubleshoots from station to station. And Cerulea Kelikor, a progenitus rat art designer who mostly lives on Amazon Station and enjoys the wildlife there, but she occasionally turns up for aesthetic emergencies i guess (laughs) i don't know but they're going to be kind of major characters as we hop from station to station i think because i just think that's a neat idea for an organization there comes a time in each man's life when he can't even believe his own eyes well after your description i don't think i'd want to see it either so should we talk about what's been awesome for the last three months (laughs) sure sure this is a news article from uh, January. I saw this on Boing Boing, the launch of the Historical Dictionary of Science Fiction. It's pretty amazing. Uh, if you're a fan of the Oxford English Dictionary, like all of us are, right? Mm, of course. Yeah, I went to the unwrapping party for that. The uh, OED group put together a, um, or launched this historical resource. The OED group got a etymological first time science fiction terms were used dictionary together of like the entire lexicon of the science fiction world. Uh, We learned like the word first contact was first mentioned in 1935 by Arthur C. Clarke. And then it's later usage, uh, deep space, 1921 teleported 1931, uh, Ray Bradbury. I don't know where, or or robot also invented by a sci-fi writer, right? Ray gun, 1923, and the lexicon is just very deep. It, it has a lot of stuff like uh, that you just don't even necessarily associate with sci-fi literature. Anyway, that can be found at sfdictionary.com, and I think it's really quite amazing. There's like a quick glossary list where you can just find so much stuff. A lot of it is like alien races, and there's no shortage of those. But uh, you click on any of the entries, and it goes to like a full historical profile of like a lot of the earlier mentions and other key mentions of, of the concept. Oh, here's a good one. Concrud. 1990. It came from <laughs> Minneapolis. Um, the program book from the it came from Minneapolis Minicon in 1990. Quote: If you have a severe case of the creeping concrud, there is instant soup and oatmeal available to keep you hale. Oh, and it's got an archive of the image of that of that usage too. How neat! Wow. Wow, it's got the program book from that convention. Truly, it's, we live in a wondrous age. It's got a zeppelin. It came from Minneapolis. Anyway, really neat resource. So one thing that I was excited about recently is the release of another story in Alistair Reynolds' Prefect Dreyfus series called, this book is called Elysium Fire, but it's a sci-fi police drama set in, 
set in a band of space stations, each of which has very, very different governments. And so it's interesting to read about police who have to, tr to work with different laws in each environment that they're called to. Uh, so very IRPF. Good story, too. Well, I think the next sequence of episodes is going to be bouncing around across the various named blue skies uh, and maybe some new ones as well as we explore that side of HSD. Good luck, guys. And uh, until then, uh, catch you outro line. podcast is copyright 2021 by Radio Free Deimos and their Creative Commons reused with attribution. Visit the Radio Free Deimos website, that's Radio Free D-E-I-M-O-S, for more episodes and game content. Our theme music is Mars by Lemmy. Ooh.